Hi everyone and welcome to Future Imagined, a foresight podcast dedicated to futures thinking. I'm Sophie Brackliffe, your host for today, and I lead Foresight for Europe as part of Mars Wrigley's global foresight team. Today we're going to be discussing the future of work. couple of years, we've seen work routines shift dramatically, creating new norms and accelerating change. The pandemic served as a real catalyst for trends such as hybrid working, which we would have expected to evolve gradually over the next three to ten years. But whilst COVID provided a moment in time for the concept of work to be redefined, today we'll be discussing the future of work, the expectations that people will have from employment in the years to come, and what that means in the context of technology developments. I'm privileged to have two experts on the world of work joining me for this conversation. Hi everyone, Susanna Yule here. I'm a business psychologist by background and I'm a director at YSC, which is a global leadership strategy consulting firm. We really specialize on helping take the business strategy of our clients and look at what are the leadership implications for that. So what kind of leaders do you need to pull off where you're trying to get to? And how do we help you close the gap through assessment and development and working with teams to help them come together more effectively? I'm originally from New Zealand, but I've lived abroad for about 10 years and five years in London, three years running our Hong Kong practice and moved to New York just before COVID, which has become the marker of time. I'm Estella Shardlow. I'm the Senior Editor of Consumer Lifestyle at Stylus, which is a trends intelligence platform. I look at the behavioural and attitudinal shifts of consumers and what this means for global brands in various industries. My background is in a variety of customer publications and copywriting for brands. One of the buzzwords that you hear most frequently when it comes to the world of work is flexibility. And that's not only flexibility of location, but also flexibility in the way that we work. People want to ensure that their relationship with work aligns with their values and the lifestyle that they seek more broadly. But I do want to start actually with the physical location for work. There are varying projections as to how much remote working is going to stick. McKinsey suggests that only 20 to 25% of workers in advanced economies are able to work from home three to five days a week. And although that's three to four times the level before the pandemic, it's still a minority. On the other hand, you have the likes of Gartner saying that 82% of company leaders intend to permit more remote working at least some of the time. But I think that what most people agree on is that an increasing number of roles will find a way to provide some flexibility of location to workers. And that for those roles which were traditionally office-based, working from anywhere for at least part of the week will become standard practice. What I'd love to get your view on is the human aspect of that. So remote working has a huge impact on people's mental, physical and emotional health. How do we think that technology will evolve to make sure that people feel connected when they're not in the same physical location? A big part of this isn't even about evolving the tech itself, but our use of it and the kind of behaviours and expectations around that. So you've got things emerging like Microsoft's virtual commute tool, which I thought was quite an interesting example of trying to sort of delineate our time better. So whether it's sort of programming in time for meditation or yoga or even a podcast to sort of bookend the day, I think that's something that we'll probably see evolving more as people really feel like they don't want their work and life sort of routines to bleed into each other too much. Then looking kind of longer term, I think evolving our actual devices to become more intuitive is going to be a sort of key area to address because one of the big issues right now is that 
a lot of us have this sense of being very tethered to these like small rectangular screens, which isn't exactly the most stimulating way to work and is actually quite bad for our bodies as well. So I think that if tech can find ways to sort of, yeah, as I say, liberate us from that, whether it's through sort of more like holographic or mixed reality tools, and also things like gestural and voice commands, that's going to be a big advantage. One thing you touched on there that I think is super important is the level of control, because where flexibility works for people is where it allows them control and freedom and empowers them to be able to fit work into their life and create the balance that they want between their family life, their lifestyle and their job or their employment. So one of the things that we're seeing now and will continue to see is that as people are working in a more hybrid way, their weak ties are getting weaker. So they're drifting further apart from people that they don't have regular contact with. So people end up with an inner sanctum where they are candid and open. But when they're speaking to those weaker ties, they end up being more self-monitored, more distant. And what that ends up creating is subcultures. So what that means is that it's harder to create one unified culture. And this is particularly exacerbated by the shortening of tenures with organisations. So as people are moving on faster and there's these subcultures being created, it is making it harder to have one culture that people can connect with, which often culture is a big source of engagement and loyalty. So it reinforces itself in terms of people seeing their relationship with their employer as being more transactional. I think in the future, one trend that we're seeing play out a little bit is the idea of polywork. So the idea that people have multiple jobs rather than just one single nine to five. So they're not having that same level of connection to one single employer, but rather they are embracing multiple jobs and side hustles, almost like an evolution of the gig economy, but rather than it being something that is for a minority, it is something that is for the majority. It's the normal way of working. And people are finding that that level of independence and autonomy actually does give them personal fulfillment. How does that work alongside the idea of loyalty and the need that people have for one employer to provide a culture? Sometimes there can be misconceptions about polywork and that people see it as being flexible and freeing and something that's quite liberating for people and gives them more flexibility. But I think for many people, it's a necessity and actually something people have to do. They have to find those additional complement to their income. So I think they often depend on it from a financial perspective and it's often consuming a lot of their free time. So I think sometimes there can be a counter argument to the benefits of it. I feel like we hear so much about how especially younger workers are all sort of rushing to hand in their notices and become sort of entrepreneurs. And I do wonder how much that will actually be sort of borne out because one thing we do know about the pandemic is it's causing huge amounts of sort of financial uncertainty and difficulty for people. And there's kind of an argument that in that scenario that people tend to sort of gravitate more towards stability and secure, um, more traditional roles, perhaps. So I wonder if maybe what we're seeing is an aspiration to be more self-sufficient and entrepreneurial. In Google Trends 2021, apparently it was the first time that people searched more for 
how to start a business and how to find a job. So that sort of reflects there is an interest in that. But I don't know if it's kind of a bit of a, a privilege in a way to go down this passion economy route for a lot of people. You know, it's precarious. I think what it enables people to do is pursue two things in parallel and get different things from different activities or employers. So they can have one employer that's paying the bills and another that is fueling their passion, which I think in many ways is more realistic for a lot of people. I don't want to stereotype on generational themes, but I think you often hear that people who have entered the workforce more recently, they want their job to be something they feel passionate about. They want to really love it and they want it to have meaning. And I think sometimes that can lead to a sense of disappointment if actually you get into the workforce and this job doesn't provide all of those things. So I think this provides an alternative way of creating that portfolio model where you can quite intentionally get different things from different engagements. I think that's a really good point. And whilst it's not purely a generational thing, I think that it really plays into it because Gen Z have grown up seeing aspirational peers make it in the world of the creator economy or the gig economy, selling goods or services, renting out excess assets. The people that they are following as influencers, the people that they look up to have done this. You know, they have had this type of career and made a lot of money from it. And so it is, I think, a little bit generational because they're seeing people monetize passions and turn their specialist subjects into a revenue stream. And so therefore, as you say, you kind of think, well, why can't I do that? I'll do that too. Yeah. And of course, Gen Zs have so many tools at their disposal to kind of platform their ideas and their skills compared to previous generations. So, you know, making something happen for yourself is maybe just more of an ingrained mindset for them and the kind of gatekeepers and barriers that might have existed for Gen X that they're not coming up against that as much perhaps. So then thinking longer term, do you think employers will have a bigger role to play in retention if people don't have that level of loyalty and then post-pandemic are then looking elsewhere and we see a bit of a shift? Do you think that the role of the employer in attracting and retaining talent will change in the future? I think the expectations that people have of their employers have already dramatically changed and will continue to change. So I think while perhaps a decade ago, leaders were expected to lead the business and make it perform. Whereas now and into the future, there's much more of an expectation that you'll be responsible for your people's well-being. You have to show a commitment to societal leadership, social justice, politics, the environmental sustainability it's becoming a much more complex role for people. And there's a lot of senior leaders who will have got to a pretty senior position based on a formula of leading the business and making it successful and motivating people, et cetera. And they're going to find that actually what's demanded of them is just a lot more complex than what it was. Although I think this is a good thing because we have some big global problems and we can't rely on governments alone to solve them. So I think the private sector has a lot of power in moving the needle on these things. And going forward, I think the fact that it's being demanded by employees will be a critical driver of solving some of these problems. I think some of the language which keeps coming up at the moment reflects that shift because seeing so many references to, to empathy in the workplace and kind of humanizing the work culture, which I think is quite interesting something that maybe people wouldn't have thought of as being a sort of core leadership trait in the past, but now people are really seeing it as being 
quite essential and and expected and one of the ways that I've noticed that coming through in in some day-to-day is is how certain companies are really overhauling and, and progressing their employee benefits and also kind of compassionate leave policies so just recognizing for example that one day's compassionate leave if you're grieving isn't very sufficient amount of time or giving grandparents paid leave to help with childcare duties and lots of these things. So if people have these many different kind of social, familial or health reasons that they might need extra compassionate leave, then that's sort of actually now being seen reflected in, in these policies. And with this idea of like, these things aren't enshrined in law at all, but certain brands are being quite progressive in adopting them. If the workplace is becoming more humanised, jobs are going to completely embrace that same trend where robots will be doing some of those repetitive tasks and the World Economic Forum predicts that 85 million jobs will be displaced by a shift in the division of labour between humans and machines by 2025, but that 97 million new jobs will be created. We'll have robots that are taking some of those tasks that people used to do But instead, that will mean that the role of people in the workplace will have to shift and will be pushed even more towards those human traits. So the jobs that people will be doing will be more creative, more entrenched in empathy. As you said, Estella, that's something that's going to be super important. There'll be more emphasis on humans doing the jobs that require strategic thinking or problem solving. Do you think that the way the workplace is moving is sort of because of or reflecting some of that trend in the skills that people will need in the workplace? I think there's huge collective benefit of what you're describing. So the fact that we got some things that can be automated, it then makes our economies more productive. But at an individual level, I think there's a lot of automation anxiety, particularly prevalent for older people. And I think the challenge is that, yes, there are a lot of new jobs that are created by technology, but they're often not done by the people whose jobs were made obsolete by technology. There's obviously a real need for this kind of concerted retraining effort and kind of upskilling and reskilling people. And I think also transparency is quite key here because I think there's quite a lot of sci-fi mystery around how people perceive, you know, robots entering our everyday life more. It's not going to happen overnight. So it's something that we have a responsibility for as individuals and as leaders and and companies to make sure that we're tuned into how the industry is changing and how the demand for skills might evolve and how do we therefore take more of a, a lifelong learning approach so that we are keeping current and relevant and don't get left behind in some of these technology advances. And the other thing that goes alongside that is general career trajectories. So at the moment, the formula of, I think, what's been called the four and 40, where the majority of employees go to university for four years and then work for 40 years, that's not going to be the world of the future. Instead, the new model will be lifelong learning. Like you say, that you're going to have to learn new skills and new capabilities all the time because you're going to have to keep up with the technology changes and the capabilities that are needed in order to thrive in that world. To your point that you just mentioned, I I think I heard that Google and and Apple 
just some companies who have abandoned the degree requirement where it previously existed. So I do think that the approach to education is evolving rather than it being something that you do at the start of your career and then you don't revisit it. I think it's becoming more age agnostic and less linear because the demands and the context and therefore the skills are changing so much faster. So we need to do more periodic education in more of a cyclical way throughout our careers. And I think the people who do this will be significantly differentiated from others. So I think it's no longer going to be something that people do as a hobby and an interest out of curiosity, but rather a survival skill. Yeah, and you mentioned that the age point because, you know, the ageing population, I think, really plays into this too, because we've got a 40-year-old who's expecting to have another 30 years in the workplace. That's actually should be a, a prime time to do a career pivot if you wanted to. There's plenty of time ahead of you. But then at the moment, I feel like there aren't really the right kind of platforms and initiatives to allow people who have a lot of professional experience and maybe want to pivot to, to do that. You know, you don't want to be moving back with the sort of to the 20 year olds who have never had a full time job before. You kind of almost need, I, I was thinking the day of this term of like flip turnships that kind of allow people to do those side steppings would be quite interesting. And I did see an internship program that's for specifically 50 plus professionals. So that's quite a novel idea, but maybe we'll see more of that kind of helping people who are a bit later into their careers still sort of refresh and and maybe move into different areas if they wish to. Because I completely agree with the point about needing to continually, um, you know, lifelong learning and training and sort of snackable qualifications throughout your career. But also if people might think, well, the job that I picked back when I was a 21-year-old actually isn't doing it for me anymore. And um, I want to find a way of, you know, reinventing myself. Especially because the job that they might be better suited to now didn't exist when they were making that decision about what to go into. But it comes back a little bit to Susanna's point about having one job that provides your income and then being able to do other things around the side that play to your passions and the purpose that you want to identify with. Because you hear about this fundamental shift in the way that people are viewing the traditional nine to five job. But if people are going to be needing to be doing training throughout their career, as well as wanting to specialise in all these different subjects and make all these passions into their own businesses, somebody's going to have to fund all these things. And so it does kind of suggest that that scenario where you have one job that does the training, does the base salary almost, with your passions being around alongside that, is probably the most likely scenario for the future of work. One other thing that might facilitate that as well, though, is this move to the four-day working week. So I think there's been quite a lot of tests, I guess, in terms of whether the four-day working week works, whether reducing working time but keeping people's salary the same can actually result in boosted employee happiness and productivity at the same time. That might be one way that allows people to have that idea of polywork and having multiple jobs because if you're freeing up one day a week, it might be that people can use that one day to play into their passions and to almost drive the passion economy, like we said, but then have the four days a week where they're working for a single employer. I think that the four-day week is, you know, the pilots are happening all over the world at this at the moment. And if you look at the feedback that's coming from those, 
it does seem quite compelling that workers are reporting that they are happier and more productive. I think that it's kind of all ties into this idea of the value shift and just really trying to get to grips with the satisfaction that we can get from different roles in our lives. If we talk about flexibility and we're talking about people being allowed to work from home or work remotely and therefore achieve a better work-life balance, not all jobs can be done remotely. And so if you embrace that idea of a four-day week, then it sort of gives back some of that work-life balance and flexibility to people who can't do that through remote working. I think it's a brilliant point because there are times when I've thought about some professions, you know, you take a pilot, for example, or a doctor, obviously they've got some paperwork, but there's a lot of professions where they're quite discreet. You do them in a certain place and they can't bleed into the rest of your life. I think some people have envied that in the past, but now they don't have the privilege with a pilot. You can't fly the plane in your own time when it suits you. So there are certain professions that I think are really missing out on this trend. And I think to your point, Sophie, the four-day work week really would share that flexibility around with some of those professions that might not otherwise benefit from it. I also just reminded me of um, a study I'd read that consumers were saying that flexi time is more important to them than remote work. So 95% of people, this is in the the US, said they they wanted flexible hours, whereas 78% wanted flexibility around location. So we're seeing still both high numbers, but there was actually like an even bigger appetite for the time over the place. You get more control out of choosing your hours rather than choosing your location. So I think that that's probably why that affords people more freedom because it means that they can balance other aspects of their life with their work. Whereas if you're working from home, you're still having to work (laughs) in all those hours. You're just at your desk in your lounge rather than at the desk in the office. I think there are a lot of benefits around well-being, particularly given a lot of people have been saying that well-being and mental health will be the next global health crisis after the pandemic. And so thinking about the benefits of that to well-being are pretty clear for me. I think the challenge is, and some of the skepticism that I have seen is around, do people actually work fewer hours or do people end up working on that fifth day anyway? And I think until you have a society where that becomes the norm, like a five-day work week is now, you don't really get a chance to switch off on that day. I think it will take a while before it becomes the same as a Saturday or Sunday. In that transition process, which I think will take a long time, if it does happen, it's quite tricky because if I imagine it happening in my firm and all of our clients aren't doing it, then you have to be responsive. So it's, I think it's tricky until it becomes mainstream. And I think that an evidence point for that was COVID, wasn't it? When everyone started working from home, People were worried about whether they could trust their employees to work, even though they were located at home. But we saw the opposite in that people worked more hours and were more productive because of that limitless connectivity. They were always connected, always on, always online. But we saw the human cost to that, didn't we? Because we saw increased burnout and the impact that it did have on people's emotional and mental health. I think there's something to be said around the idea that society hasn't kept pace with technology here because it's become perfectly possible to respond to work messages at midnight and therefore kind of quite insidiously become normal. 
but I don't think anyone really stopped to think, you know, when, you know, we were all embracing email and laptops and everything that this would be one of the downsides to it but now you have places like France and Portugal making it illegal to contact people after hours and they are really making efforts to enshrine that downtime legally and I wonder if that will spread to more places. I think also the jury is out about whether the flexible hybrid working is advantageous or disadvantageous for well-being and work-life balance because I think you can find a lot of arguments for both and I think probably personality is the moderator variable there whereby for some people it will have a positive impact because they're better at switching off and creating boundaries whereas for other people it just the day just starts when they wake up and finishes before they go to sleep. Also like generational and socioeconomic factors as well because it's such a big difference whether you've got um, an appropriate separate workspace in your house or you've got a desk shoved in the corner of your kitchen and that's going to affect your work well-being. And if you are a younger worker and you haven't had the opportunity to develop a lot of soft skills in the office, that's something that I'm quite aware of with people just starting their careers now that they're missing out on quite a few Things you learn by osmosis when you're in a workplace, whereas for someone that's, you know, maybe got a decade of experience behind them, you kind of feel like you're all set to maybe be a bit more independent. I think the people who are earlier in their careers are more disadvantaged, but also who are new to a company. So while there's a lot of movement, I think it's much easier to work remotely when you already have existing relationships. As those people who are younger in their career today, you know, in 10 years time, they'll be well established in their career and they will have learned to work in this way. They will have grown up in an environment that is working this way. So do you not think that the next wave, you know, the gen alphas of the world will almost learn to work in the same way as we are now because they won't know anything different. That will just be the world of work that they enter. Yeah, and you'd expect that by then um, the kind of structures around it will have caught up, whether it's the spaces that we do get together and collaborate in, how often we go there, all these things will hopefully have kind of adjusted whether we're still on this quite steep learning curve at the moment, I think. I think what becomes tricky, though, is because it's hybrid and it's not, if it was all remote, then I think everyone's on the same level playing field. Whereas I think with hybrid, it's more complicated than all remote or all in person. Because I think that you risk having in-groups and out-groups where people who are in the office are more looped into things, they're more involved in conversations and decisions. I've heard some clients say with the return to office, they're actually saying you're either all in or you're all remote. So even if you're in the office, you can't be in the same room as people for meetings because otherwise it creates that disconnect and the dynamic with some people being on the screen and some people being in the room together. Yeah, I've read about this as well. And I think it's a really good point that this this potential for sort of having almost two tiers in the workplace, the people who are going in more and fabricating those relationships in person. And actually, I think I've seen some studies that the the people that are tending to go back in more already are leadership positions and white male employees and women and people of colour are actually opting for more of the remote working. So obviously that could create some issues in terms of an equitable workplace. So any last closing thoughts? The one thing that strikes you as the most important 
thing about the future of work. In my opinion, we certainly do still need an IRL workspace in some way, shape or form. And the sort of virtual iterations we're seeing, or you know, attempts to get people working collaboratively in VR online aren't very satisfactory and I think potentially you know, the tech evolves enough they could serve more of a purpose but I really see the benefit of people still gathering in a workspace but then that whole sort of space evolving to promote the more collaborative and the camaraderie aspects of work so I think it's just about being more intelligent about what tasks we try to get done together and which ones we can do better remotely because I think they do serve very different purposes. Coming back to the human angle of what we're expecting in the future is I think the old world of work had quite a strong parent-child dynamic between employer and employee and technology means people expect to be in control of their own time more. So they want to decide when they're going to do it and how they're going to do it. Especially when you think about some creative jobs where people do their best work outside of the traditional hours because of where they have the most energy and creativity. So why should we constrain people to do work at times when they're least productive? And I think the knock-on effect of all of this for leaders is that it challenges existing power bases and established management controls. So it threatens the existence of some leaders and managers that require them to give up the mechanisms by which they've become accustomed to managing performance. And I think that is, in some ways, a bit daunting for people. So I think there's the theme there around needing to support leaders and how they make those transitions. You know, I think a big hurdle that leaders have to jump through is to stop measuring inputs and start measuring outputs much more. If the basis of recognition for work is what is actually produced, then the time and place of the activity becomes irrelevant. If there's one thing that's clear from our conversation today, it's how the future of work will be centred around human needs. Whilst technology will afford us a greater level of flexibility and we'll see AI and robotics augmenting the work of individuals, Estella was absolutely right that the pace of change in the world of work will be dictated by society keeping up with technology. People will ultimately be driving the value equation. Their expectations of how to create balance in their lives will be aided but not driven by technology. And as a result, the human need for flexibility, freedom and control will shape the jobs of tomorrow, combining purpose, passion and employment in a way that shifts both the dynamic between employer and employee and the types of jobs that will drive the future of work. For today, though, my work is done. So thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Sophie. Stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Wrigley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjares, with editing and sound design by Matha de Leon. Thank you.